Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation highlights from the Meeting House on Faith Radio about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. Adam Holtz leads the plugged-in department of Focus on the Family, and while he deals mostly with content delivered through technology, he actually offers some ways for families to spend time together this summer without it. Some of his comments are ahead. Then, Carol Whitney lives on a farm with her husband, who is known as Larry the Cable Guy. She uses her love of horses to create stories that are centered on the love of God. Find out more coming up. Also, perhaps you saw him in the movies War Room and or Courageous. Now you can learn more about his story. Actor T.C. Stalling shares about the work of God in his life in a recent documentary release. Through childhood struggles and challenges in athletics, he was able to see the way to the Lord. He's coming up later on this edition of the Intersection Podcast. And on this edition, some comments from veteran journalist Rosser McDonald. He heard about a Texas prisoner who was serving a 300-year sentence. He discovered that God had come into his life and the impact was profound. And from Alliance Defending Freedom, Denise Harley discusses a recent U.S. Supreme Court decision that struck down a Louisiana law forcing so-called abortion doctors to have hospital admitting privileges. Finally, more analysis about high court decisions from Stephanie Taub of First Liberty Institute, who comments on a case that preserves the rights of religious organizations to set their employment standards, as well as a long-time case involving a charitable group of nuns who did not wish to be forced to provide contraception and abortion-inducing drugs in their health care plans. They received relief recently. This is The Intersection, a production of The Meeting House, and I'm Bob Crittenden. Adam Holtz is the director of Plugged In, an arm of Focus on the Family, which provides reviews of various types of entertainment media online and on radio. Even though content his department reviews is delivered digitally in most cases, our latest conversation was on ways that families could spend time together in activities that are not technological in nature. From that conversation, this is Adam Holtz now. My wife and I are parents of a 9-year-old, 11-year-old, and 13-year-old. And we've all been together. My wife's worked at home. I've worked at home. Uh, We're back in the office a little bit now. But um, after three, four months together, I think it's really easy and it's tempting for parents to just turn kids loose on their screens, you know. And frankly, we've done some of that. I'm not going to say we've gotten it totally right. It's it's been a challenging environment. And so I just want to recognize that we're speaking into that context where I think a lot of us as families, we're pretty weary of the interruption and the status quo. And as much as, as we love our kids, we weren't expecting spring break to last for four months, <laughs> you know, because that's kind of what it's felt like. Um, so let me talk about uh, these five suggestions of things to do with your kids this summer kind of in that context. And so getting to your question, you know, the first one I would say is, and this is going to sound simple, but in some ways it's the most difficult, say yes to as many requests your kids make as possible. And I would say especially if they involve getting out of the house and sharing some adventure time together. You know, obviously we may not be able to do everything we normally uh, have planned on for the summer. But, you know, if your kids say, hey, let's go camping, yeah, get the tent out. Or even if it's something more simple, and this is more where I've been, you know, dad, can we go for a bike ride? Yeah, we can go for a bike ride. And for me as a dad, sometimes that means I have to put my phone down. You know, sometimes it's not the kids who are the, 
you know, the real um, repeat offenders, if you will, when it comes to technology as parents, you know, sometimes we need to, to take the same lessons to heart. Uh, but uh, say yes, uh, saddle up, get out there with your kids and, and really look at this as an opportunity to engage with them in ways that, that maybe you wouldn't be able to if we weren't all spending so much time together. And, you know, the other thing is I think a lot of places around where, where we live, there may be uh, historical things, there may be parks, there may be even local touristy things to do that maybe for whatever reason you've never done before. So take an opportunity to say, hey, what's the history of our area? What can we go do that will help us to learn a little bit more about where we're living uh, and, uh, you know, make a day trip of it, you know, as much as you can and probably still with a mask on. <laughs> but uh, understanding that there's an opportunity to do that right now in a way that, that maybe there's not normally. I think another old-fashioned one uh, that, again, it's so old-fashioned that you might not think of it, is break out the board games or, or playing cards. You know, we live in this world of constant online connection and distraction. How about we say, you know what? We're going to turn our cell phones off for two hours, and uh, we're going to play a game. The other night, my wife and one of my daughters and I played a game of Scrabble, and we hadn't done that for years. And it was really delightful. Now, again, sometimes as parents, we're stressed out, we're caught up in our own stuff, and it's easy to say, no, no, I'm not going to play a game. But um, I think that it's an opportunity to to be relational, to do something fun, to do something that builds memories. And, uh, and it doesn't probably cost anything. Most of us have a game tucked away. And, and, you know, some families have a culture where game playing is just a part of the deal, right? You know, they, you just do that. But for other families, that may not be a part of your, your particular family culture. Uh, and what I love about playing a game is it's, um, you know, Scripture talks about two different kinds of time. Kairos and Kronos. Kronos is the is the time where we're watching the clock. We have appointments. We have to get things done. But Kairos time is kind of that time where we're not really watching the clock, and there's a there's an opportunity for a relationship to just happen. That would be my second suggestion here. Adam Holtz of Plugged In from Focus on the Family here on the intersection. The website address is pluggedin.com. Next up on this edition of The Intersection, it's Carol Whitney. She's an author, podcast co-host with Back to the Bible, mother to two children, and wife of Daniel, better known as Larry the Cable Guy. In our conversation, she shared about her devotional book entitled Unbridled Faith for Young Readers, which integrates her love of horses into her relating of biblical truth. Here now from that conversation is Carol Whitney. Well, the reason I wrote Unbridled Faith is because I really want uh, people to know uh, their creator. I really want them to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And the reason for that is because uh, when I grew up, I didn't have any um, faith talks. We didn't go to church. There just, it was, there was nothing there as far as uh, faith and a belief in God, none of that. So when I was in my 20s, uh, I don't want to out the denomination, but I had uh, went to someone and said, asked them if I could go to church, and they said that I wasn't welcome there. And so not having anything um, to cling to and then hearing stuff like that, I basically came to the assumption that maybe I was created 
uh, as an accident or maybe even as far as I was created for evil, um, that it just didn't apply to me. So uh, I would say I met my husband when I was 26 or 27, and he was a Christian, and I wanted that. I wasn't, I didn't want to talk to him about it because I was pretty insecure about it. Uh, so I rented at Blockbuster when those were around, um, the passion of the Christ. And when Jesus looked down, uh, and said, forgive me, father, or forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And I thought, man, I think it's not too late for me. And so I really started studying the resurrection because that's really the crux of the faith. If Jesus did not raise from the dead, then none of this would be be true. So I really started studying that and um, found enough evidence that I believed that Christ was exactly who he said he was. And it wasn't, though, until probably a year or two later that I got sick and wasn't sure what was going on, um, that I really realized my dependence on God and my purpose is to know him and then to make him known. And so once that triggered, man, I just gave God everything. Uh, that first Peter five, seven cast my cares on him because he cares for, for me. And man, I was, I was, uh, at that time too, just writing things down. Um, not a journaler, but I just saw such purpose in telling others about Jesus Christ. And so as I was writing these things down and witnessing on social media, someone approached me and asked me if I could write a book um, and then put the horse stuff in with it. So I thought they were crazy and I fought it, but uh, eventually I obviously gave in and that's where Unbridled Faith spawned from. Um, so that is my purpose. You know, I just want people to know that it's real, that Jesus mm. came to us to save us. And that is his purpose. Tell me about how you really came up with the idea to do something for young readers. And how did you really adapt the material from the previous devotions or the devotional into this new book oriented toward younger readers? Well, I have a 12 year old daughter. Um, so that's helpful. Yeah. And uh, I see the necessity in it. I would have, I think, uh, just knowing myself, uh, I think I would have really thrived with something like this. I had questions about God when I was a kid, and I would go to my parents. That You know, they didn't have any upbringing when it came to uh, like a faith uh, foundation. So they didn't know, but I remember going to my mom and asking her, her if she believed in God. And she said, yeah, I guess it's the alternative. Uh, in her mind, it was, well, I'll say I believe it. Maybe she did, but um, she just didn't want to go to hell. And that's not a relationship. Um, so I think I would have, you know, as a kid, there was a few times I would open the Bible and and try to determine if I was going to go to hell or not. And I think kids have a lot of questions. And, you know, this certainly would have helped me out, I think, as a kid, just to help me find some peace even at an early age. So I think it's super important. Also, too, kids around 12 years old start to question what they believe versus what you believe. 
So they'll think, do I just believe this because my parents told me to believe it, or do I actually believe it? Kara Whitney here on The Intersection. You can find her at Back to the Bible's website, gotandem.online. Well, I had a chance recently to talk with T.C. Stallings. In our conversation, he gave some background information about his documentary film, 24 Counter, The Story Behind the Run, which shares elements of his life story, including a memorable college football play and a recounting of how God has worked in his life. Here now is T.C. Stallings. 24 Counter, The Story Behind the Run is a documentary, and um me and my wife laugh about this all the time because we 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 start calling it uh, a documony, and we we laugh because we think we invented that word. I never <laughs> heard that before. That it's a documentary of my testimony, and essentially that's what that's what the story is. You know, it's like you 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 sit down with me and we're having a cup of coffee, and you say, "Hey, I'd love to hear about the most transformative moment of your life," um, and that's what I end up getting a chance to tell you because the story is how I came to really understand what it truly meant to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And so the documentary tells that story with all the documentation and, and all these videos and all these interviews. So you can see that it really happened, everything that I'm saying. And it's just basically, you know, from when I was a kid growing up, uh, football pretty much became the, the true leader of my life. And if football is the leader of your life, man, then it's the Lord of your life. You know, you're doing everything mm-hmm. for it. And I kind of put Jesus on the back burner. Well, after so many years of doing that, it became a religious habit. But then when I got to college, I found out that that was the wrong way to do it. And it was around my sophomore year. And this is what you'll see in the film of how I learned it, the trials and tribulations of learning it, how my life changed as a result of becoming a committed Christ follower. Now, your relationships change, your opportunities change. You know, some people don't like you. You start to face persecution. And this particular persecution ended up spilling over into my athletic career. And that's when Satan kind of tried to have it to where I was having to decide between do I want to play football at the highest level or do I want to follow Jesus? And it was almost like he was trying to make me decide and he was tempting me to make it football. But through a series of events that you'll see in the documentary, um, I chose Jesus and he ended up rewarding me uh, based on that choice and showed me how I can live the rest of my life as a committed Christ follower. And so I wanted everybody to be able to see this story, see my true testimony, and I hopefully it inspire people because Satan's going to come at them too. That's what he tries to do is get us all knocked off course when it comes to our purpose and when it comes to us properly following Jesus. And so this shows everything, and it's all true, and I, I can't wait for people to see it. So as you were growing up, was there a a faith background that you had perhaps in your home or perhaps a faith commitment that you had made, or was that something that you were perhaps resisting during your, your childhood and your teen years? Well, yeah, I grew up, I grew up, um, my mother would take me to church and I just learned all the, the habits, you know, no, I didn't have any super Christians in my home, you know, like people who really knew what it truly meant to have Jesus as Lord. But what I did have is a mother um, who had been, you know, she sung in the choir. She always went to church on Sundays and she always made sure that I went because she felt like that was a great foundation to have, you know, a basic fear and respect of the Lord. And so that was the one thing I'm so glad that she did because that set the foundation for me. Um, but again, I look at it like, you know, when you, when, when you are trying to get in shape in life you know, and you want to go to the, to the gym, well, walking in the gym, changing clothes, coming out of the locker room and, and sitting down next to a weight machine is a great start. But you got to start like lifting those weights and sweating and working and to get anything done. 
that's kind of how I equate my early Christian life is my mother basically got me on the road of believing in Jesus and showing up to church and, and doing the habits. But I didn't really like get into it to like get into scripture, let it sink in, understand what all that stuff really, really meant. I was just, Hey, the church goes on vacation, Bible school. You do that summer stuff at the church, the, the, the events and all of that, but letting it really soak in, I didn't have that yet. And so I carry that basic belief for several years, all the way up into college. But it was then when I actually was in a Bible study with another student, and we opened up Scripture in such a way where it was life-changing because I was really digging in and letting the Bible come to life within me. Like, I was really, really reading and seeing, like, oh, wow, I I didn't pay attention to what Jesus is saying here. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I grew up with a basic belief, but I really, truly learned how to obey and let Jesus be the Lord and not just somebody that I'm religious with. That was later down the road. T.C. Stallings here on The Intersection. You can find out more by going to tcstallings.life. Well, this is The Intersection Podcast. It's a weekly production of The Meeting House, and you can learn more through meetinghouseonline.info or by going to the programming section at faithradio.org. You'll find a link to the Media Center through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured here on the Intersection Podcast. The podcast can be found in the Media Center. You can also subscribe to it via iTunes absolutely free. Plus, two blogs are accessible. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community, and the other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House program. And you can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. Plus, there's a link to video content. Conversations from the Meeting House can also be found through the Faith Radio app and a variety of podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Veteran journalist Rosser McDonald visited with me recently. He shared about the transformation of notorious Texas prisoner Ricky Smith, who gave his life to Christ in the midst of a 300-year prison sentence. A series of events documented in McDonald's book, Real Prison, Real Freedom. From that conversation, this is Rosser McDonald now. That's where he got his reputation as being the most violent man in Texas prison. Because, I mean, he got up in the, in the, he was in the infirmary one time and got up in the attic and set the building on fire. And just, you know, no matter where they put him or what he, he found a way to, uh, to, to create a, a problem and, and attack someone. And that is until he, there was a, a man, well, Ricky's girlfriend had been smuggling drugs into him when she'd come to visit. Well, she got caught smuggling these drugs and went to prison. Well, this man down is in the cell block where Ricky was and had said something out loud to everybody about he had told the FBI about contraband. And so they just, Ricky decided that he must be the snitch that got his wife put in prison. So I got to kill him. And there were two other guys who also wanted to kill that uh, snitch. And they, they made a plan. And uh, Ricky was very creative with his plans. You know, it wasn't just brute violence, particularly. There was plenty of that. But also he was very creative in making plans to get uh, where he could, uh, could use his, uh, his force. So they had a plan. And they were getting ready to carry it out, and it fell apart. 
okay, so we go to plan B, made another plan, worked that all out, got all everything ready uh, to make that plan work, and something happened that disturbed it. It would they, they couldn't, they had to abandon that plan. So he goes to plan C, and plan C falls apart, and uh, so they bring in the, the special squad, and everybody gets uh, beat down and, you know, laid on the concrete uh, and, and all of that. So at that point, Ricky says, wait a minute. Why all of a sudden are my plans not working? They've always worked well. And here all of a sudden, who, who is against me? Who is, is stopping me from being able to, to get this guy? Um, and then he said, well, maybe it's God. Maybe God's protecting him. He's, he's try- Why would he protect him? And then he said, maybe he's not protecting him. This is all in his mind. He's mm-hmm. thinking all this through. He said, maybe he's not protecting him. Maybe he's against me. Well, why would God give a hoot about me? I have rejected him. I've cussed him. I've made fun of him. I've made fun of his Bible. I all up and down in front of all kinds of people. Why would he care about me and what I'm trying to do? Well, that kind of got him thinking a little bit. And he pulled out a letter that he had gotten two years earlier from a chaplain that had quoted Jesus in Matthew saying, Come unto me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Ricky, and that in his frame of mind, which actually was he'd sleep two hours and wake up in a rage and mad and all the hatred and everything. In that frame of mind, that word rest jumped out at him. He said, that's what I need is rest. So he read some more in the scripture before that verse and after that verse. And finally, at that point, he got down on the concrete floor in his cell and said, Jesus, you say that you will accept me. You will come to me and to give me rest. And I accept you coming to me if you will accept me. And he felt a change in his spirit. So that was put him on the track then to uh, to change from being the most violent man in Texas prison to becoming one of the nicest guys in Texas prison, living as a Christian, which he has been doing now 30 years. He's still living as a Christian mm. in prison. Rosser McDonald here on The Intersection. The book is available online. Next up, it's Senior Counsel for Alliance Defending Freedom, Denise Harley. In our conversation, she discussed a U.S. Supreme Court ruling against a Louisiana law requiring so-called abortion doctors to have hospital admitting privileges. Here now from that conversation is Denise Harley. Louisiana's law that was at issue in this case required abortion doctors, um, like all doctors at outpatient surgery centers in Louisiana, to obtain admitting privileges at a nearby hospital. So what that means is the doctor would be vetted by a hospital because these hospitals like to make sure that whoever they allow to practice there um, are you know, competent to practice. And it also ensures that there's some sort of continuity of care where when something goes wrong in an abortion, the woman is able to get the treatment she needs. Um, and the reason the Louisiana legislature passed this law in a 
overwhelmingly bipartisan fashion, it was nearly 95% of the legislators voted for the law, was that there is a horrific track record in Louisiana of abortion clinics botching abortions, um, keeping expired medications on hand, um, failure to sterilize instruments, and on and on and on. So this was a way to protect women's health and safety. Um, If it sounds familiar, it's because it's very similar to a Texas law that the Supreme Court struck down in 2016. But Louisiana believed that they had um, plenty of evidence that this really was necessary, and we saw it make its way all the way up to the Supreme Court. Um, And I'm glad you previewed the change in composition of the court because I think before the arguments there was so much anticipation for what was going to happen because outcomes in either direction could have been potentially um, game-changing for abortion law. But what we ended up with, which I'm sure we'll talk about, was, was a very, very narrow decision that really didn't change much at all. It was actually a 4-1-4 vote, which you do not see very often. So Justice Breyer wrote the plurality with the four liberal justices. Chief Justice Roberts wrote his own separate opinion that no one joined. That opinion agreed with the plurality's bottom line, just the judgment, but it did not agree with any of Justice Breyer's reasoning. And then each of the four conservative justices wrote their own dissent. So we had a total of six opinions, but the one that controls is Chief Justice Roberts, which is extremely narrow. Yeah. So let me give you the the big picture of okay. Justice Breyer. Boy, opinion. I did simplify it, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's easy to do, and and you know headlines and stuff don't don't help. But Justice Breyer's opinion went into all this detail about you know sort of a sob story of how burdensome it would be if abortion doctors had to simply comply with the same regulations that the rest of the medical profession has to apply, you know, has to abide by. And again, we see this, I call it the abortion distortion. And some of, you know, some of them in the pro-life world call it that because it's, it's like abortion is treated so radically differently mm-hmm. than everything else. It's, it's not held to the same constitutional standards. Chief Justice Roberts pretty much said, I think the 2016 decision was wrong. I don't think the Texas law was an undue burden. But because we decided that, now it's binding precedent. And this law is so similar that, therefore, this law is unconstitutional. And that's pretty much all he said. Um, So ultimately, when you step back, we don't know that much more. All we know is this very specific Louisiana law with a very specific fact-based record was found to be very similar to another law that was struck down. Um, and, and nothing grander than that seems to have been changed in the landscape. So you had, as you mentioned, you had each of the four conservatives write a dissent. Give us a summary, if you would, about what they were saying. Well, if you want to get real jazzed up, I, <laughs> I recommend that you and all your listeners go read them because Justice Alito and Justice Thomas in particular did just a fantastic job of um, showing how wrong the outcome is. Um, So it might make you angry too, but I think um, Justice Thomas focused on 
how wrong Roe is. The fact that there was never, it was never conceived that there was a, a, a right to abortion in the Constitution. That makes no sense. I mean, not only is, does it not meant, does the Constitution not mention abortion, it doesn't even mention privacy, which is what supposedly the abortion right comes from. And at the time of the Constitution and for hundreds of years afterwards, you know, for at least, what, nearly 200 years afterwards, abortion was criminalized in most states. Denise Harley here on The Intersection. You can find out more about the work of the Alliance by going to adflegal.org. Finally, on this edition of The Intersection podcast, it's Stephanie Taub, Senior Counsel for First Liberty Institute. She discussed two rulings from the U.S. Supreme Court. Number one, a ruling that affirms that religious organizations have control over their employment practices. And number two, a ruling that provides relief for religious organizations that do not wish to provide contraception and abortion-inducing drugs in their health care plans due to conscience objections. From that conversation, this is Stephanie Taub now. This case involved two Catholic schools out of California, their elementary schools, and that issue was whether courts can oversee the employment relationship of these schools with their teachers. So two teachers, they brought employment discrimination lawsuits against the schools. And the question here is whether courts are required to stay out of employment disputes involving teachers of faith at these religious schools. And so you had these lawsuits that were brought forth, these separate cases. The Supreme Court, as I understand it, heard both of them together and actually ruled on them together. So what did the high court say? That's right. So this court, it, it um, upheld the First Amendment principle. It upheld that the First Amendment protects the right of religious schools, places of worship, and other religious ministries to choose who performs vital religious duties. And this case is not just about Catholic schools more broadly to protect the right of um, of all of these religious ministries um, to really decide who is uh, who is able to teach the faith, who is able to lead the faith, and, and it's the recognition that we don't want secular courts to come in and interfere, intrude into these fundamentally religious decisions. So these were really fantastic. This was really a fantastic decision by the United States Supreme Court last um, last week. If you would take us through the the stream, if you will, with respect to little. Sisters of the Poor, and specifically what the Supreme Court ruled in this case. The Supreme Court had a great ruling last week, but this is a case that, as you said, has been going on for quite a long time. The Affordable Care Act passed way back 10 years ago in 2010, and these cases have been going on for about seven years. Um, shortly after that, um, these cases started with the Little Sisters of the Poor. And they, many religious employers, such as this group of Catholic nuns and other evangelical Christian or pro-life employers, object to facilitating contraception or abortifacient drugs, um, such as Plan B, in their, in their health plans. So um, a few years ago, uh, I guess a lot of questions that we often get asked is, uh, hasn't, hasn't this case already been decided? What about the yes. Hobby Lobby case? Yes. What about the Zoo, the Zoo Bank case? So in Hobby Lobby, basically the, the court held that small for-profit businesses with sincere religious beliefs um, are entitled to religious liberty protections under federal law. So even though they're not a nonprofit, even though they do operate for-profit, because they have 
they're run by a family that with sincere religious beliefs, that that family can operate their business in accordance with those beliefs. And so they, they would, uh, they qualify for an accommodation to not be forced to pay for contraception that they disagree with. Uh, and then in, in, but that didn't solve all of the issue because there are other nonprofit work. There are nonprofit organizations and small for-profit organizations that object to providing the coverage at all. So the Affordable Care Act would still hijack their these health plans and include the include the objected to coverage through those plans. Uh, and so they would object. Um, so these employers don't want to facilitate in any way uh, something that they believe is really immoral uh, and in some cases um, dest- destructive, they believe is destructive of life. Uh, and so that's where you get uh, the Zubik case that went to the Supreme Court not very, not very long ago. Um, and that was the, so that was the issue of whether people like the little sisters of the poor, poor um, would, would be able to opt out entirely of, of having this, these objected to coverage in their health plans. What was it that the Supreme Court actually ruled recently in this particular case? They actually ruled on the issue that the Supreme Court kind of hunted on. They left it for another day. Yeah. And so that's what this case is. And they held that administrative agencies can uh, can consider how their actions impact religious freedom. So in the meantime, we had a new president. And so the Trump administration came in and granted a full religious and moral exemption to organi- to uh, employers like the Little Sisters of the Poor. And that um, should have solved the problem. But some states came in and said, no, we don't like that you did that. And they brought a lawsuit under the Administrative Procedure Act trying to argue that the, the, the administrative agency didn't even have the discretion. They weren't even allowed to consider religious freedom issues, which is, in, in my, in my under, estimation, a really extreme position. Not that they were required to, uh, to acknowledge, uh, to respect religious freedom, but that they weren't even allowed to respect religious yeah. freedom. And uh, so fortunately, the Supreme Court held that it was, it was permissible it, um, that, that for administrative agencies to consider religious freedom in how they uh, make their regulations. Stephanie Taub here on The Intersection. You can find out more by going to the website first, spell it out, firstliberty.org. We are nearing the end of this week's edition of The Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. Learn more at meetinghouseonline.info or by visiting the programming section at faithradio.org. You'll find a link to the Media Center, the place you can go to listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on the Intersection podcast. You can find the podcast in the Media Center as well as through iTunes. Two blogs are accessible from the Meeting House homepage. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community that is released weekly. Also, there's The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House program. And you can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. Plus, there's a link to video content. Conversations from the Meeting House can also be found through the Faith Radio app and a variety of podcast platforms. Again, the website address, meetinghouseonline.info, or you can go to the programming section at faithradio.org. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.